The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These podcasts are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. Hello, everyone. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, your host for this episode of ASRM Today. On this episode, I'm speaking with Susan Crocken, who runs the Crocken Law and Policy Group and also is a senior scholar and adjunct professor at the O'Neill Institute for National and Global Health Law at the Georgetown University Law Center. She's here today to discuss surrogacy contracts. Susan, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. Where does the surrogacy contract conversation start for reproductive medicine? I think it starts with a fundamental understanding that making a baby through surrogacy is a lot more complicated than doing it at home and that there are more than medical considerations that have to be taken into consideration. So I think it starts with a fundamental understanding of how intertwined this area is between medicine, law, psychosocial, ethical dimensions. What are the different types of surrogacy that doctors will see? Well, historically, doctors saw traditional surrogacy or what we now call genetic surrogacy, meaning artificial insemination, where the surrogate was the genetic mother as well as the gestational carrier. More and more often we're seeing gestational carrier relationships, gestational surrogates, and that's where obviously IVF embryos are transferred to a woman. So she is not genetically related directly to the pregnancy she's carrying. That said, within the area of gestational carrier arrangements, I think we're seeing some variations with family and friends, uh, women who step forward either volunteering or having been asked by a family member or friend to carry for them, women who are recruited through professional organizations, coordinating programs. And it, on the intended parent side, I think we're seeing an explosion in terms of same sex and single parents, all of which are possible with this type of um, technology, if you will. For an REI working with surrogacy patients, does it matter what state you're practicing in or where your patients are from? Yes, it matters tremendously, and it matters for this reason. Family law is state-specific in the United States. We don't have a federal law. We have 50 states, and I sometimes joke with my clients that each of them knows that they know how to do it best. So if you're a doctor in state A and you're, all of your patients come from state B, there may be a disconnect. If your carrier and your intended parents come from two different states, you've now got three states to worry about. And the reason it's relevant is, and I sometimes boil this down to a very simple mantra, which is doctors can do incredible things helping to make babies in this field, but only the law can make a family. So for those involved in surrogacy from the participant side and from their legal counsel side, it's really important to know how do we bring this baby into a loving family as a legal parent-child relationship. Equally important, how do we take this incredibly generous woman who has agreed to be a gestational carrier and ensure that she's not tagged with legal motherhood or obligations of parentage? What is the doctor's role with screening? So this is a really important area where the medical profession 
needs to be on first, if you will. You know, there's some areas where, such as parentage, the legal profession needs to take the front lines, but medical screening can't be delegated. It is absolutely critical if a woman comes with a, uh, to a physician's office recruited by intended parents or a family or a friend, it's the doctor's obligation to screen that woman. You need to get medical records, you need to have a psycho, uh, psychology screening, you need to involve the gestational carrier's husband if she has one, and it's, it's not something that can be delegated. More and more we're seeing surrogacy arrangements that have been put together by recruiting programs, coordinating programs, and those people may come with records, but it's never something a doctor can delegate, and they need to always know that, that this is their patient, Surrogacy is complicated in one part because there's more than one or two patients. There's now intended parents, gestational carrier, spouses, and screening is their obligation. There's a really interesting case that brings that home to me. Uh, it's a trial court case out of Maryland, but a doctor was told by a proposed surrogate that she'd had four pregnancies, I think it was, and told orally about what her history was. She, in fact, had had six, had lost one of the children through preeclampsia, and that's exactly what happened in the surrogacy arrangement. The baby was born and died, born prematurely and died. The intended parents sued the doctor, claiming they were negligent in not having obtained the records of that woman and independently assessed whether or not she was suitable. So that's a critical role doctors have to play. And I just think it's um, not something that we can look at too lightly. The duty of care in surrogacy is something that lawyers think about a lot because the law is somewhat undeveloped, if you will. We have a handful of cases from back in the 90s that talk about surrogacy is unique. It brings together a lot of people and doctors have an obligation along with those who coordinate, such as lawyers and recruiting programs to all of these people and that duty may be higher than in other cases and at the minimum it's always a duty of care to their patients. Help us to understand the unusual or unique duties or legal responsibilities a doctor may have in a surrogacy arrangement. As I mentioned I think the first one is that an REI who is helping initiate a surrogacy arrangement can never lose sight of the fact that that carrier is his or her patient. So that's number one. Number two, as you go through the pregnancy, and this will apply to OBGYNs as the pregnancy goes forward, they need to understand that the surrogate retains all the rights of any other woman who's carrying a pregnancy. No matter what the agreement says, we cannot force any woman under constitutional principles to carry a pregnancy, to abort a pregnancy, to selectively reduce a pregnancy. So doctors caring for patients in a surrogacy context need to keep that first and foremost. HIPAA concerns are gonna come up. For example, let's say the intended parents call and say, what did the test show? Well, ideally you've got a clearance, um, you've got documentation from the surrogate saying you can give all information that's asked about the pregnancy to the intended parents. But if that's not in place, you've got a restriction there that doctors need to be very careful of. Another thing that can happen in the unfortunate situation where there's some disagreement is a pregnant woman could withdraw that release. 
in which case the attentive parents call and say, hey doc, can you tell us about X, Y, and Z? The answer is, I'm sorry, I can't. My patient has withdrawn her consent to that. So those are some of the unique things that can come up with surrogacy. It's just that recognition that you have a lot of people and their interests may coincide, hopefully, but at times they may conflict and you have to be sensitive to your duties to, in that situation. When you enter into a legal agreement for surrogacy, and Bill, I can talk about that in more detail, but some of the most critical elements are how many embryos will we transfer? And as everyone listening to this knows, the current guidelines are in favor of single embryo transfer. So a legal agreement to transfer, for example, two embryos goes against guidelines and a physician needs to be able and ready to step in and say, my clinical professional judgment is that we do one. They're not bound by this contract. They're not a party to it. They have to use their independent medical judgment. Similarly, if there's an agreement to transfer one, there are cases we've heard of where it gets close to transfer time and the doctor and the intended parents agree that this, the embryos don't look as good as they hoped they would. So maybe they should put in to maximize the chances or everyone's paying out of pocket. This is expensive. So let's see if we can save people money and put in two because it's not likely to result in twins. And then you look to the carrier and say, what do you think? Whether or not you're going to get true informed consent at that moment from this woman is a very serious question. You know, she will have previously entered into a legal agreement. Ideally, she should have had independent legal counsel throughout the entire arrangement. And yet, if you put her on the spot and say, can you now decide how many to transfer more? If she, you know, how do you ensure that first, the doctor's looking out for the surrogate, and secondly, that she is understanding all of the risks to herself and making a good informed decision to agree or not? So let's let's stay then with legal agreements. Can you just go a little bit more into how that works and what's in it exactly? First of all, a legal agreement is a contract and it's between the intended parents, the surrogate and her spouse, if any. And that agreement should be finalized before any medical procedures start. What a physician needs to know is that that legal agreement exists that it has been negotiated by independent counsel on behalf of the carrier and on a separate counsel on behalf of the intended parents. We recommend typically that a doctor's office does not need to or want to see the entire agreement. You're not a party to it and you don't need to be on notice about every single detail. But what we do recommend is that a physician's office insist upon receiving what's called a legal clearance letter before they start. And that letter should be representing what I said. First of all, there's a legal agreement. Secondly, that there have been independent legal counsel for the surrogate, separate and apart from the intended parents. Third, the number of times they're going to try to do this. Fourth, the number of embryos they have agreed to transfer per attempt, subject to medical discretion and advice. Uh, other things that typically would be in that clearance letter would include um, if there's any time limits, you know, usually it's like a 12 to 18 months, we will finish this up and everyone has a right to stop if nobody's pregnant. COVID-19, which is a topic unto itself, is certainly throwing a monkey wrench into some of these things. But essentially, the medical profession wants to know that the legal profession has done their job and taken care of their clients. There are a lot of other things that are in these agreements, but they're not if you will, central to the medical profession doing their part. Um, other things you, that should be in the legal agreement, just for 
people listening to know are you know what i consider the most important things first of all which is a recognition that in the united states every woman has a constitutional right to control her body so an agreement to continue a pregnancy terminate a pregnancy reduce a pregnancy are all something that cannot be enforced if she says she will do it uh, specific performance is a term in the law that basically some contracts you can order specific performance you know you told me it's hand me that, you'd sell me that apartment, you have to sell me that apartment, but you cannot apply that to a body. You can't, the joke we learn in medical school, uh, law school, excuse me, is, you know, you can't make the opera singer sing, but you can penalize her. You can't make a woman do something to her body she chooses not to, no matter what you put on paper. You can talk about breaches of and financial penalties. Other things you see in there are restrictions on travel, as I said, every state is different, so you don't want an eight-month pregnant carrier uh, traveling to a state where surrogacy is prohibited. There are very few of them left, but you want those types of things. Um, especially with COVID-19, we're seeing all sorts of other restrictions coming into play. International arrangements, we have learned the hard way that there has to be a um, custodian someone who can take the child in the event the intended parents can't get into the United States. You need financial arrangements where all the payments are spelled out fairly. And so there's lots and lots of details. But stepping back from a medical perspective, I think the doctors need to know a couple of really critical elements. There is a contract. It was fairly executed. It was negotiated in good faith between two separate independent lawyers. And it clearly spells out for the doctor's office what's going to happen with embryos, transfers, um, et cetera, and for how long. What's so unique about a surrogate pregnancy? There's a lot that's unique. There's, I mean, I sometimes joke with clients who are intended parents and say, you know, the women who choose to be surrogates are going to be pretty feisty women, women who are comfortable enough to walk into their classrooms, if they're teachers or their places of work or their friends and family and say, I'm pregnant, this isn't my baby. So you're not going to get women who are shrinking violets for the most part agreeing to be gestational carriers. And that's a good thing. But what it also means is that, you know, you as the intended parents have to have some degree of comfort and confidence that this woman and they are going to get through a pregnancy. It gets harder rather than easier the farther it gets. So I think the first thing I used to tell clients when they sat down is I can write anything into a contract and I can make it longer than 25 pages if we need to. But if you're literally, you know, virtually getting in bed with the wrong person, it doesn't matter what we put on this paper. So what I tell people is you have to have a meeting of values, first of all, before you start this. And everyone's values can be, there can be a wide range. They just can't be a disagreement. So you can't have somebody who would never terminate a pregnancy because it's against their faith, but says, well, it's your baby and I will do whatever you want and not worry about that as time goes on you really need to have a level of comfort and fundamental agreement about things like what will we do you need to drill into things like uh you know in the old days people would have vague terms like well if you want me to terminate because there's an abnormality i will well what kind of abnormality what kind of issue is a uh, serious what are we talking about ironically i used to find that with family and friends some of this was even 
more vague than it was with carriers who are recruited and paid because nobody wanted to ask their sister or sister-in-law, well, what will you do if this comes back? And the amnia was troubling and those hard conversations were really tough. I used to sit sometimes with clients and say, we need to have the hard conversations, whether it's about pregnancy management or paying for something. And, you know, they say, oh, I'll do anything for my sister. I, I don't want a penny. And I said, well, you know, when you're seven months pregnant, and you can't put dinner on the table and you have to order from McDonald's, you're going to feel bad enough that you're giving your kids a meal that you would never have given them. You're going to feel 10 times worse if the bill's $40 and you're not having to pick up the cost of it. So let's talk about these nitty gritty details. You know, one of my favorite stories was the husband of a carrier. They were sister and brothers-in-law and he said, I want something written to the contract. It's important to me. And I said, okay, what is it? And he goes, She's awful when she's pregnant. I want a case of beer every month for nine months delivered, and I want to promise that they will take this kid. And, you know, I, I overlooked saying earlier that a fundamental, because it's so fundamental to us lawyers, a fundamental element is always that the parents are the intended parents and we'll do everything we can to make them the legal parents under the law. And the carrier is a critically important person, but not a mother or a parent. But those are some, you know, these communications with the physician's office can get really dicey. If you step back, most heterosexual couples entering into surrogacy are coming at it because of infertility. Same-sex couples may not be, and they may not carry the same sort of losses. But for most of my clients who are heterosexual couples, they were they've gone through tremendous losses and tremendous fears. And so learning to trust that here was a pregnancy they could not literally control, could not decide what went in, the, in their mouth, what you know, how they lived can be very nerve wracking. I had a sister who was absolutely convinced that her sister was keeping bad results from her because she didn't think she could handle them. And she was driving herself into a state of complete anxiety, convinced that there was something terribly wrong with the pregnancy. And, you know, this was a while ago and I was able to call up very informal, a small practice and say, look, I know my client's absolutely un unreasonably anxious and she's driving her sister-in-law crazy. Would you, as a courtesy, put one nurse aside to take her phone calls, return her calls within 24 hours and give her all test results if it's okay with her sister-in-law? They said, sure. And I was able to relieve a lot of pressure on her, on the carrier. And at the same time, you know, my client became a little less, you know, anxious, if you will. So it's that balancing of human issues. And for a physician, I think it's really tough because they may be getting those kinds of pressures. Who's coming into the delivery room? You know, the contract may say one thing. You've got to make sure you have a power of attorney. You've got all sorts of um, emotions flying and it's it's not like most other pregnancies in that respect. There's just a lot of people making this family. If the law can make a family, what are the parentage issues that doctors need to know about them? Good question. And this is where I think we flip. When I say the medical issues, the doctor's always on first. On the legal issues, the uh, law's on first. And this is another place where I tell people you can't get in bed with the wrong person and it might not be anything wrong with that person, but they may live in the wrong state. So fundamentally, the legal issues are this. When a baby is born, 
the question of who is that child's legal parent should be known. There should not be a question mark hanging over anybody's birth. In order to do that, in a surrogacy arrangement, there are a lot of legal steps that have to happen because if you go back 100 years, there weren't women who were having babies that were not mothers. So the law had to figure out a way to recognize that a mother is not always the person who delivers a baby. And because of that, every state has tried to figure out what to do about surrogacy. Traditional surrogacy in the, in the old days, the baby M case where the surrogate was the biological genetic mother as well, created a lot of issues because those women were birth mothers in the eyes of adoption law. In the area of gestational carriers, every state, with the exception of one or two left, has recognized that gestational surrogacy is happening, has a process to legitimate parentage, and does not oppose compensated surrogacy. That said, what you need to know is that the law which is going to apply is going to allow the intended mother and father or intended parent, same sex or individual to be legally recognized at the moment of birth. It's a process the lawyers have to shepherd through, but they have to do it where the child's going to live or where the child is going to be born. And they have to do basically, you know, they have to game out the entire parentage process before the medical procedures start. Typically, we boil this all down for doctors and for clients and say, you need a pre-birth order. A handful of states don't do this pre-birth, but most now will allow an order of parentage that says upon the birth of this child, you, the intended parents, will be the parents, not the woman who delivers the child. And how that process is going to be undertaken, completed, and communicated to the hospital is really important. It varies by state. As I said at the very beginning, interstate cases are much more complicated. International cases are even more so. Some states allow parentage orders for any intended parent. Some require a genetic connection to one or two parents. Some have require a court proceeding, and some have streamlined it to an out-of-court process if everyone is in agreement. Um, there's been some bad cases where, particularly in the international space, where sometimes the pre-birth orders don't happen on time. And the reason that that's a problem from my perspective is number one, if a child is born without a parentage order in place, the carrier is the legal mother. Her insurance may then be called on to take care of the birth and any cost in the NICU. And for immigration purposes, she's the legal mother. These people who are international parents need to get these kids into their home country. So. In an ideal world, and the one that I would advocate, we have very experienced lawyers before the medical procedures start figuring out how we get a parentage order so that this, this is clear. We don't allow uh, people to go forward without that in place, and we secure parentage orders long before birth so that there isn't any confusion about who's legally responsible, financially responsible, and how we're going to get this child transported. I have been talking with Susan Crocken about surrogacy contracts, and it has been very enlightening. Susan, thank you so much for taking time out to be with us today. Thank you, Jeff. It's been my pleasure. Take care of yourself. You too.
This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, other information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org.